Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Man of Screen Podcast. My name is Mike Zumo, and today we're going to move into the second phase of this podcast. We spent the first four episodes talking about the animated shorts that came out in the 1940s. Now we're moving into the next era of the Man of Screen by taking a look at the two Kirk Allen movie serials. The first in 1948 was Superman the Serial, and the second was in... 1950, called Adam Man vs. Superman. They were both produced by Columbia Pictures toward the end of the serial age, and they're both 15 chapters each. Chapters ran about 15 to 20 minutes, and they were shown in theaters every Saturday. I first became aware of this serial in 1988 for Superman's 50th anniversary. NBC produced uh, basically a little spoof-slash-documentary of Superman's 50 years you know, to celebrate his anniversary. And it was more or less a clip show, showing a lot of what I was familiar with from the Christopher Reeve movies and the George Reeves TV show at that time. This was the first time I realized there was another Superman, which was Alan Superman. And it was a point that was really driven home later on that year, when at about May, for my communion, I was raised Catholic. Somebody gave me a poster, a Superman poster, And it was a nice yellow poster. I wish I lost it when we moved out of our place in Brooklyn in 1992. But it was a big Christopher Reeve in the middle. Down to the sides, were in black and white, were George Reeves and Kirk Allen. That was when I discovered that Kirk Allen was the first man to portray Superman in live action. Looking back, I consider Kirk Allen to be the forgotten Superman. This is a point that was really driven home on February 29th of this year, around the time of Superman's quote-unquote birthday, February 29th, where Dan DiDio released kind of a montage of pictures of Superman through the ages. Guess which live-action Superman wasn't there? Kirk Allen, like I said, the uh, forgotten Superman. No one, including myself, is going to argue that Allen did it best, but he did do it first, and that has to count for something. So I became familiar with this serial a few years after that, in the 1990s, when when my father bought the two-disc set of each, not two-disc, the uh, two-tape set of the two serials. The uh, original serial, Superman the Serial, was in a yellow sleeve, and Adam Man vs. Superman was in a blue one. We actually still have those videotapes to this day. They're in my father's uh, living room. I, meanwhile, have since bought them on DVD. Superman was a long time coming to the live-action screen. Republic Pictures tried twice to produce a Superman serial. The first time, negotiations just fell apart between Republic Pictures and National Comics. That was to be in 1940. The second attempt was in 1941, but according to Wikipedia, negotiations fell apart for two reasons. First, National Comics insisted on absolute control of the script and production. And secondly, the rights to Superman were already committed to the Fleischer cartoons. Now, Sam Katzman who produced the two serials, acquired the rights in 1947 and tried to sell them to Universal Studios, but they were no longer making serials at the time. He tried to sell it to Republic, but they claimed that a super-powered flying hero would be impossible for them to to adapt, despite the fact that they had already done so seven years earlier with the adventures of Captain Marvel. And also, and this might have been an even more important detail, by 1947, Republic was no longer buying properties to adapt for serials. So, Columbia eventually took took the deal. It was Katzman who found Kirk Allen after looking through some photographs, although he had a hard time of selling the idea of casting Allen to Whitney Ellsworth, who was 
national national comics is representative on the uh, on the project and according to a story alan came in for a screen test sporting a goatee and a mustache as he was shooting another project at the time however alan got the part but since columbia and this is a very interesting deal i'm surprised it was accepted maybe maybe there was no sag at the time probably wasn't because this wouldn't fly today columbia just said they hired superman himself and kirk allen was merely playing just clark kent I don't know if people are that stupid, but Kirk Allen is not credited as playing Superman in the serials. Now, as far as the costume goes, this is the first time the costume was adapted for live action. Obviously, these serials were filmed in black and white, and instead of the classic blue and red and yellow look, his costume was gray and brown because those colors photograph better on black and white film. Later on, George Reeves would also wear... Uh, gray and brown costume for the first two seasons of The Adventures of Superman, as they also were filmed in black and white. And costume looked, uh, it was recognizable as Superman costume. Again, had the trunks, everything, the cape. The cape was a little short compared to some of the others that we'll see. This one came down to above Alan's knee, maybe just above his knee, to about his mid-thigh area. And the cape kind of looked stuck onto the shirt, but not tucked into the costume like others. So with that said, I'm going to take a quick break, uh, play a promo, and uh, we're going to come right back with the first three chapters of Superman the Serial. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it from 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com folks welcome back we're gonna head right into the first three chapters of superman the serial i'm gonna give a little bit of background on the serial before we get into the uh, synopsis the overall story is superman comes to earth as a child and grows up to be to be superman and his first challenge is to fight off the threat of the spider lady Kirk Allen, like I said, is played by Superman and Clark Kent. Noelle Neal will make her first appearance as Lois Lane. She'll play Lois in both serials and then later join the George Reeves television series in the second season. Tommy Bond plays Jimmy Olsen. Carol Foreman is the Spider Lady, the main villain in the episode. And there's a couple of her henchmen. George Meeker plays her right-hand man, Driller. Jack Ingram is Anton. Pierre Watkin will play editor Perry White. Terry Frost plays the role of Brock. Some other characters will come in later. Charles King will play Conrad starting in Chapter 6. And Charles Quigley will, pl will play Hackett coming in in uh, Chapter 6. Herbert Rollison will join the cast as, as Dr. Graham in Chapters 3, 9 through 11, and 15. And Forrest Taylor will play Professor Leeds in Chapters 3 and 4. The serial was, was written by... The adaptation was made by George H. Plimpton and Joseph F. Poland, Poland and Arthur Hurl, Louis K., and Royal K. Cole were the screenwriters. Superman, obviously, is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. And it was directed by Spencer Gordon Bennett and Thomas Carr. So, Chapter 1, Superman Comes to Earth. As 
And this synopsis is brought to you by the Super, by supermanhomepage.com. In the far reaches of space, like a pinpoint at infinity, there once was a tiny blue star. Spanning the billions of miles that separated this star from the Earth, we discover that it was in reality a planet like our own. This was the ill-fated planet Krypton, which revolved about the brilliant sun of its own solar system, while satellites like ringed moons in turn revolved about it. Krypton was a rugged planet laced with jagged mountain chains rich in strange minerals unknown to Earth. And on a wide plateau lay the capital of Krypton, the nerve center of a civilization that was far advanced for it boasted a race of super men and women. Among the leaders was Jor-El, the foremost man of science. Jor-El had concluded that Krypton was being inexorably drawn toward its sun and would one day explode like a giant bubble and disintegrate. Jor-El's wife, Lara, inspired him in his feverish race to construct a trial spaceship. If successful, he planned to build a mammoth fleet to carry the inhabitants of the doomed planet to safety on Earth. Now, giant subterranean pockets of gas exploded, touching off long sealed volcanoes. Plumes of fire lit the sky. Molten lava scarred Krypton's surface. The fears of Jor-El and Lara were intensified by their concern for the safety of their infant son. To Jor-El, the tremors and shocks, which were now more frequent and violent, were an indication that the cataclysmic day was not far off. Yielding to Jor-El's urgent demands, Rosan, leader of the council, summoned his colleagues in emergency session. This is my final plea. Time is our mortal enemy. We must prepare to escape in spaceships without delay. There is no alternative if our advanced civilization is to endure. The council has spoken, Jorel. Not spoken, Rosanne. It has pronounced the death sentence for all Krypton. After Krypton Science Council refuses to believe Jor-El's warnings of the planet's impending doom as it is being drawn toward its sun, he must launch his sun to safety in an experimental rocket. On Earth, the rocket is found by the Kents. But even this baby, the queer machine that brought it here, where did they come from? Out of the sky, I reckon. But that doesn't make sense. What are we going to tell people? We're going to tell them nothing. Want everybody to think we've gone crazy? Who secretly adopt the child and name him Clark. As a child, Clark develops superpowers. He finds a lost watch for his mother and saves his dad from a tornado. Later, when Clark had reached manhood, the Kents decided to have a talk with him. Clark, we've had you with us as long as you can remember. But you know, we're only your foster parents. My real parents couldn't have done more for me. You came to us out of the sky, from what distant place we can't even imagine. 
You're different from other people. Your unique abilities make you a kind of Superman. And because of these great powers, your speed and strength, your X-ray vision and super-sensitive hearing, you have a great responsibility. I know what you're going to say, Dad. I must use my powers wisely and justly. Yes, you must use them always in the interest of truth, tolerance, and justice. The world needs a man of such extraordinary capabilities. That is why you must leave this farm. You must go where they can be best put to use. Very well. And when I leave, I'll get a job that'll keep me close to world events. Then when anything happens, I'll know about it at once. Here's a uniform I made for you out of the blankets you were wrapped in when we found you. It's a strange kind of cloth that resists both fire and acid. I hope it'll protect you always. Well, thank you, Mother. And I'll only wear it when I'm... when I'm Superman. I think it's best that no one knows that he and Clark Kent are the same person. Shortly, his foster parents die, and Clark leaves for a train. On a train, Daily Planet reporter Lois Lane and cub reporter Jimmy Olsen are going to a story. Clark spots a break in the track and changes to Superman. Alright. Now, we start off in this serial with the classic story of the narrator telling the story of Krypton, introducing us to Jor-El and the Science Council. The cityscape of what I can only assume is Kryptonopolis. Was a, with a very nicely drawn map drawing. Krypton was shown as a very rocky planet. Now, we see the Kryptonians, they wear ornate capes. And this is the first time Krypton was shown on screen. And the first thing we see, other than Jarrell working on his tiny rocket, is that we see the Kryptonian Council not taking Jarrell's warning very seriously. He wants to put them all in spaceships and escape the coming catastrophe, while members of the Council. You know, I'm more concerned about. They say that Jarrell should stay and study the disaster as opposed to run away. What I found very interesting while Jarrell was talking to the council, he implied, he says, it's a tragedy that even we supermen are unable to prevent. I find that interesting that he, Kryptonians are describing themselves as supermen. However, there is any evidence that they have any superpowers. He's already built his model ship that's ready for testing. But, in, but Rosan, the head of the council, challenges Jarrell. To save Krypton, instead of, as he, like I said, he said, running away as a frightened child. As Jarrell is making his point at a very well-timed quake, you know, which you know, Jarrell gets a little smug after that, and uh, says, and then he is accused of, wi of wizardry as they ignore his warnings. Jarrell is just bereft. He is, he is trying to save his world, and you know, that old saying, it's very hard to help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. That's kind of how I feel about the Kryptonian Council here. You know, he's giving them the evidence that their planet is doomed, and they're ignoring it. I don't know if it's because they can't handle it, they're in denial, but they're not having it. And no matter what Jarrell says, he's begging them to reconsider. I mean, like I said, he doesn't want to see the end of the world coming. In the end, Rosan puts it to a vote. They vote no, and... Jarrell is like like we heard in the clip. Jarrell is convinced that they have pronounced the death sentence for all of Krypton and the council. They're not taking it very seriously, and so they're laughing at him as he uh, walks away. We're going to see something similar to this again when we cover Superman on Earth, the first official episode of the George Reeves television series. Except the laughter in that one is much more 
It's much meaner in spirit. And the, the councilmen are even angrier than they were in this one. Here they were just disbelieving, but when Jarrell warns them in the George Reeves show, they're disrespectful and just laugh him right out of the room. So, anyway, having failed to convince the council to evacuate the planet, the narrator will continue to detail more of the story, and eventually you see rock slides and buildings collapsing, which is probably stock footage from disasters on, on our own planet. You don't see a lot of serials back in these days knocking down their own cities for uh, dramatic effect. Not a lot of model work and miniature work being done here. This serial was done on an extremely low budget and at a breakneck pace, according to the features on the, on the DVD, so I'm sure they took the time for great effects work, which we'll get to later when we talk about what Superman looks like when he's flying. Eventually, you see an animated rocket fly away from Krypton as an animated explosion destroys the planet. And we're on our way to Earth. Now we get our first shot of Eben and Sarah Kent as they're called back in this era. You know, as they drive down the country road and they start to hear the spaceship crash. Now, this is a question I've always had over the years as it relates to Superman's coming to Earth. And this is something that's going to be shown in just about every adaptation of him. It isn't until Superman the Animated Series that this is finally addressed. Superman's ship always crashes. How come the Kryptonians by now haven't seemed to develop any kind of landing technology? You would think by now they'd be able to land the thing without destroying it. So, you see the cats pick out the baby. Apparently, it was a very quick flight. It didn't take him three years to get to Earth. As this is, to the viewer's eye, this is the same baby that left Krypton. And Sarah asks where the baby came from. And even just says, out of the sky, I reckon. As if it was the most obvious thing in the world. He's taking this all in stride. It's kicked him out of the sky. And now they're taking it home because it might be hungry. Sarah's worried about what they're going to tell people. And even is understandably saying, we're going to tell them nothing because they'll think we've gone crazy. Even. What are you going to tell people when you have a baby in the house? You didn't think of that, did you? And the serial never answers that, so we don't need to think too deeply about that. We're treated next to a mon nice montage of Clark growing up. You see him pulling a trailer full of hay. They show him demonstrating his x-ray vision as he finds uh, one of his mother's watches in a haystack. You know, as he comes out of the haystack, Sarah is just looking him on as a proud parent, you know. She stands behind him and is smiling as he rummages through the haystack. It's almost as though she's testing him. Maybe she is. And eventually, he grows up to become a teenager. And this is where we get our first super feat of the serial. As a tornado hits Smallville, and Eben is caught in the tornado as it knocks a power line down and it hits his car as he's trying to drive home. So, as you see, Clark is running here. He's not quite flying yet. The electricity is all animated, but, uh, just drawn on there. You know, works well enough here. And Clark just grabs both hands, picks up the wire, and tosses it away, not to bother anybody again. Now, after this scene, we get our first view of Kirk Allen as Clark Kent. He's reading in the same room as he was reading before he, his teenage self was warned of the tornado. And he's in his Clark Kent suit that we're going to see him wearing throughout the entire production. He's wearing glasses for no reason that is explained at the at this point in the serial. It really never is explained. It just he's just wearing them, and we have to accept that. And this is when they have the talk. No, not that talk. Not the not the talk you have with your thirteen year old son. The talk you have when your twenty five year old son is about to leave the family farm and. 
go off and live his own life. And apparently they waited until manhood to have the talk about keeping his power a secret. Apparently uh, this wasn't important until now. Even Ken is the first one to re refer to Clark as a Superman. You know, and he gives him the whole uh, spiel about to use his powers for truth, in the interest of truth and justice and tolerance. And then he says, you heard it. That's why you, need, you must leave this farm. All right, Clark, you're a grown man. I fed you long enough. Get out. At least that's how it sounds when his father uh, says that to him. So, Clark does what any one of you would do in that situation. He got out. Now, the narrator says his parents died shortly after this. It's unclear whether they died after Clark left, or if he waited to leave the farm until after they died. It's unclear. It doesn't affect the story either way, so it's kind of just a serial's way of taking them out of the story. Just kind of tossing them to the side. We don't need the Kents anymore. And we're going to the train station. And so is Jimmy and Lois. Because we get our first look of as we get our first look at Noel Neal as Lois and Tommy Bond as Jimmy Olsen, they are headed out to cover a mine disaster. And little do they know, there is going to be a disaster right here. Clark notices the flagman trying to stop the train, and he uses his telescopic vision at least I think it's his telescopic vision, to see the broken rail. And this is the first time we hear Clark use his Superman voice as he thinks, This looks like a job for Superman. Kirk Allen does the same thing that Bud Collier does. He, can, he has a lighter, higher-pitched voice as Clark Kent and more of a baritone as Superman. You heard the clip, and this looks like a job for Superman. You know, and he kind of goes on from there, and that's what he's doing. You know, I thought at first, you know, it was almost a crime that I hadn't spoken about Bud Collier while I was doing the Fleischer shorts, but looking back on them, I could see why I forgot. He doesn't really talk too much as Superman, so it's easy for that to kind of fall under the rug a little bit. So, and then we get our, so he changes into Superman, and this is our first look at Kirk Allen as Superman coming from behind the bush. And looking at Kirk Allen, you know, my mother doesn't like him. She always referred to Kirk Allen as a sorry-looking Superman, but I think he looks the part. He's stocky, might have a little bit of a gut, but that's okay. You know, they don't work out the way they do uh, now for these roles, so... He looks the part. That is Superman coming out from behind the bush. He, Kirk Allen's even got a little bit of a spit curl going on on the front of his face. Now, one of the train yard workers has this great look on his face as it's a look of shock as he sees Superman for the first time. Obviously, we're supposed to imagine that he's seeing Superman in all of his red and blue glory, but we don't get to see that. But you can only imagine what this guy's thinking of as Superman runs next to the tr to the track, kneels, and of course... That's where the chapter ends, as, as these chapters always end on cliffhangers to bring people into the theater the following week. So, with that said, we are going to move right along to chapter two of this serial, which is Depths of the Earth. Superman saves the train, and Lois calls in the story to a skeptical editor, Perry White. Clark arrives in Metropolis and... Taxi! Would you take me to a newspaper office? Uh, which one? Uh, which one do you recommend? The Daily Planet is our biggest and best. Well, fine, that's good enough for me. Right. It takes him to a building on fire. Something flew in the window. It was a bird. Couldn't be, it was too big. It was a man. But he flew through the air. Superman saves the girl from the building, creating national headlines. Clark asks Mr. White for a job. Any special kind or would mine do? Well, I'd like to be a reporter. 
I haven't had any experience in writing, but... Uh, that should help. Well, I have other qualifications that might be valuable. I told you I wasn't to be disturbed under any... Oh, it's you, Lois. Yes, this is Lois Lane, demon reporter. We're at the mine, and there's been a disaster, all right. Ten men are trapped inside the lower shaft, but they won't let anyone inside the police lines. Get in, anyhow. Let me talk to Jimmy Olsen. Here he is. Yes, Mr. White? Yes, but... Uh, we're doing the very best we can, sir. Y yes, yes, we have. Y all, all right, Mr. White. Uh, yes, yes, sir. Goodbye. I can get that mine story. They won't keep me out. How did you know we were talking about a mine? I didn't mention it. Well, my uh, hearing is a little better than average. How about giving me a chance? If you can get inside that mine and bring this story back, the job is yours. You can contact Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen there. They'll be the ones on the outside. At the mine explosion, Lois learns of a way into the mine behind the guard line. She goes in, but another explosion occurs, sealing the shaft. Clark is shown the blocked shaft and changes into Superman. All right. So, once we get past Chapter 1, these all start with kind of like a previously on, kind of what TV shows do today. It basically catches up the viewer on what happened in the previous chapter, which they all saw a week ago. Nobody was binge-watching this in 1948. So, And obviously, from the presentation, these chapters were not meant to be binge-watched. It finishes the recap, catching you up on what's going on about the train. It'll show the last minute or so of the previous chapter. Now, a slight difference here is after Superman kneels down. In the previous chapter, we saw Superman kneel down next to the track, and then the train pass over it. Here, it's, it's cut a little differently. You see Superman kneel down next to the track. He bends the rail back into place, and the train safely passes over it, with a little bump jarring uh, Lois and Jimmy. And then Superman runs away with a smile. You know, in order to save money on visual effects, Superman doesn't fly unless he has to. So, Lois gets off the train. Yeah, this is our first shot of Lois, and she's being Lois. She's investigating what happened. That's all I can tell you, miss. For heaven's sakes, man, what happened? I don't know. But I saw him with my own eyes. So what? Speak up. What What, what uh, did you say? Uh, I, I, I saw him over there. I. The train workers are perplexed as to how the rail got fixed. You know, they're looking down the, uh, up and down the rail. It's, they know that it's straight. It was split before, but it is unexplicably straight. So they're all put out. The worker that saw, actually saw Superman bend the rail, this poor guy looks like he's in shock. He just can't, he just can't get a word out, and I'm not sure anyone would believe him even if he got a word out. So, Lois sees their confusion, she sniffs a story. And I'm thinking, what story? No one knows what happened. They just think a train wreck should have happened. But it didn't. No big story here, and don't you have a mind disaster to cover, Lois? Lois is going to call in the uh, near train wreck to Perry White, and while she's doing that, Jimmy is going to have a seat on Clark's luggage. So, they get back on their train to go back to the mine. Clearly, the mine is in the opposite direction of Metropolis, because Clark does not get on the same train. So now, we get an aerial view of Metropolis, which is an air which is an aerial view of some city, I don't know, 1948 cityscapes well enough to be able to give you a definitive answer as to what city it is. So, as he gets out of the train station, he is intercepted by a cabbie who's looking for a fare, and he simply asks the cabbie to take him to a newspaper office, and he suggests the Daily Planet. The biggest and best. That's good enough for Clark. If that's good enough for Clark, that's good enough for me. But, 
Clark is distracted by the fire trucks. And, well, why wouldn't he be? You know, I must admit, right away, right off the bat, I love the look of old school fire trucks. You know, they don't they have an aesthetic that modern fire trucks just don't. Here we get our f first actual look at Superman using his X-ray vision. Of course, the narrator has to tell the 1948 audience that uh, he's using his X-ray vision. Apparently, they couldn't figure it out for themselves. So he see, and his X-ray vision is basically represented as a little square in 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 which you can no longer see the front of the building he's looking into, and that's pretty much the representation of his X-ray vision throughout. So he finds a woman, changes to Superman, and this is the first time. We see Superman fly, and he turns into an animation, which is jarring at first, because Sam Katzman attempted to make Superman fly, and his flight is really considered to be the weakest point of this serial. The effects created by Republic for Captain Marvel were more, far more convincing, and honestly, the George Reeves ones were better than this. The crew did a test of flying sequences as Kirk Allen spent an entire day suspended by visible wires in front of a rear projection of moving clouds, but Katzman didn't like it. Fired the entire flight sequence, production staff, and went with the animation instead. So, this is what he decided to go with. So, this is kind of what we have to deal with. So, like I said, he turns into an animation. And it's easier for them to animate him taking off than landing because they can handle the transition from Alan to the animation better when he's taking off. Because when he lands, he always lands behind something. So, after he saves the girl, you see the montage of papers telling them of Superman's exploit. One paper calls him a bird man. You know, then now we're going to get our first look at the Daily Planet newsroom, as Clark asks to see Perry White, who is still screaming and going crazy due to the train wreck. But Clark barges in anyway, suitcases in hand, and a big smile on his face. Definitely has the wonder of a small-town boy in the big city. And I wish it were this easy to get a job at a great metropolitan newspaper, but alas, it's not. After an entertaining exchange between Clark and Perry, he listens in on the phone call and says he'll get the mind story. Perry talks to Jimmy for a minute. You can't hear what Perry's saying, but you can see on Jimmy's face that Perry is yelling. And you can see Jimmy squinching his face and uh, moving the receiver away from his ear. So, Clark scores his tryout. If Clark can come back to the planet with the mind story, the job is his. So, he's going to go back out to where... So beyond where he was, I have no idea really how close Smallville is to Metropolis, but maybe it's just on the outskirts. Obviously, Clark didn't take a train. He probably flew, but we don't see that on screen. Meanwhile, at the mine, Lois is asking to get into the mine, and she's overheard by the local guy who shows her a secret way in. Why didn't this guy tell the authorities about this? Obviously, we learn later that there's a little, that there's a little bit of an issue with this guy, but still, if... So anybody tells the authorities there may be another entrance into the mine, they'd be at least required to look into it. So, Lois goes into the mine, and this backfires on her as there's another another explosion in them. Lois is trapped, leaving our local to report a second accident. And this is where Clark meets Jimmy for the first time. Now say, I'm from the Daily Planet. I'd like to see the manager of the mine. So would a lot of other people. So why did hire someone else? Well, only if I get the story, but I'm not so sure of that as I was. Uh, I'm Clark Kent, and you're... Jimmy Olsen, the planet's best cup reporter. I'm still on the payroll. Now the, lo the local comes back and tries to tell the guard about the accident, who dismisses him. And this is the problem with this guy, that he's reporting fake accidents for years. Still, the source may be credible or not. It only takes a few minutes to check. And if someone's life is at stake, you need to check on that. But he doesn't. Clark doesn't listen to the guy, but he does look. And I think he says... 
what he says to the guy just to get rid of him. And the chapter will end. The chapter will end as Clark changes into Superman and runs into the mine. So, before we move on to chapter three, I'm gonna take a quick break, play another, and play another promo. Hang around. Carl, you have traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey, everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday only at Two True Freaks. Welcome back, folks. Now here is Chapter 3, the final chapter that we're going to cover in tonight's episode, The Reducer Ray. Superman breaks through and saves Lois and the Miners. Back in Metropolis... I hear you covered a great story. Only somebody else brought it in. Well, hello. May I congratulate you two? Skip the sarcasm, Chief. You missed a page one story. We had the story. We'd have phoned it in if we hadn't been stabbed in the back. You've got the wrong slant, Lois. Kent gave the planet the scoop we badly needed. Oh, yeah. Well, he's still a rat for my money. While I'm out there risking my neck, he... Who's your silent partner? I'm the rat. Lois Lane, Clark Kent. Nice bit of reporting you did. A little underhanded, of course, but still nice. Well, I'm sorry, but my getting a job depended on it. Oh, by the way, what about that job? You've been on the payroll for hours. Now perhaps we can have some teamwork around here. We will. Superman's feats cause many headlines. In Washington, Superman is asked to witness a test of Dr. Graham's invention that harnesses natural reducer rays, concentrating them to create a beam that can be focused miles away and create an explosion greater than an atomic blast. The Spider Lady, Queen of the Underworld, contacts an associate in New Mexico who tries to use negative rays to prevent the test until a doctor can witness the test for the Spider Lady. 
Superman stops the effort, and after and after the test... Now that you've seen the destructive force of the reducer ray, I'll tell you why we ask you to come here. We want you to guard it. You can understand the danger which would threaten the world if it fell into the wrong hands. I appreciate your confidence in me. All I can say is I accept the trust and its responsibilities. Thank you, sir. It's Aston Washington to guard the relativity reducer ray. Later in Metropolis, Professor Leeds spots an approaching meteor. Well, it's 8 o'clock and no meteor in sight. Those observatory wizards must have miscalculated. According to my watch, it's only 7.59 and a half. Hey, I think I see it. Where? Well, that's the biggest meteor I've ever seen. Wonder where it landed. There may not be anything left. It seems to have disappeared before it reached the horizon. Well, we'll soon know. I have a network of spotters waiting to report. Meteors are so strange and mysterious. They come from somewhere out of the universe. Nobody knows where. It crashes near the city, and Perry sends Lois and Clark to investigate. En route, Lois leaves Clark, who is picked up by Leeds. Leeds takes Clark back to the Metropolis Museum to see the glowing meteor. Leeds thinks it is from Krypton. Although harmless to humans, it causes Clark to collapse. Operator! Get me the car. Clark Kent just died in my office. Alright. First throughout the mine, and when Superman crashes through the wall here to go into the shaft that Lois entered through, he becomes an animation, as most of the visual effects shots in this serial are. He got enough air into the, apparently he got enough air into the mine as the miners start to come to after Superman breaks his hole and pulls out Lois, and then he starts coming back for the rest of the guys. Then we see Superman talk to Lois for the first time. You take care of him, I'll go back and help the others. And this is the first time Superman speaks to anyone. Afterwards, they're all back in uh, Perry White's office, and uh, Lois meets Clark for the first time as kind of the rat who stole her story. You know, Alan plays Clark with a uh, gentle playfulness, and you'll see this throughout the uh, serial. As I think, uh, you know, O'Neill have some pretty good chemistry as they as they go through. They play off each other very well in their scene when he's Clark and when he's Superman. So now we're gonna get the classic montage of. Time passing and Superman on the job. You'll see clips of bullets bouncing off Superman's chest as he catches crooks. You won't really see a lot of him punching anyone out like George Reeves would. But he spends a lot of time picking people up by their collars and banging their heads together. I don't know. This Superman must enjoy giving people concussions. Now a radio report on the uh, expositional radio network. We'll report that Superman has been uh, summoned to Washington. That expositional radio network is uh, the adaptation of a line uh, by Michael Bailey. Here is our first look at the Spider Lady, played by Carol Foreman. And ironically enough, uh, Carol Foreman, the year before, had played a femme fatale in a Republic serial called The Black Widow, where she was cast as the Spider Woman. Here she's the Spider Lady, so apparently she uh, cannot escape the spiders. And she's wearing a very slinky black dress with a black mask that she will wear occasionally. You know, we never find out anything about her. She just is. Just like everybody else. The only person we really know anything about is Superman. So, anyway, her men in Mexico are standing by for a test on, on the reducer ray. And this is and then this is where we meet Dr. Graham for the first time. And, this, like you heard before, the Secretary of Defense calls the reducer ray more powerful than the atomic bomb. So they're going to arrange a test for Superman to witness. And... Nice note on his speed here, as they're showing him where the test is going to be in New Mexico. 
Superman points out that it's 2,000 miles away and that he can be there in 30 seconds. Nobody really bats an eye at that. They just take that as, all right. Nobody seems shocked or anything. They're taking it all in stride. And now right here, as he's leaving, Alan has this great smile as he runs to the window. Oh, that's the window. The door is over here. Yes, I know. Up, up, and away! He looks as though he's enjoying himself while playing the role, kind of showing that you can enjoy your work and still take it seriously. When he goes to the window, he says, up, up, and away, which he does occasionally during this, uh, this serial. Now, I don't know this for sure, but one thing I read one place was that things like, this is a looks, looks like a job for Superman and up, up, and away, those are things that were derived for the radio series. Where the, when the listener didn't have the visuals to see Superman flying off. And the dialogue will then push the action forward instead of the visuals. It's done here too, but it's unnecessary. Superman gets to New Mexico. And we've already seen these guys demonstrate their machine by on a train. Just stopping it cold in his tracks. They're going to use it to try to stop the reducer ray test. And Superman just lights up and the machine explodes. This allows the reducer ray to destroy the... Blockhouse target, and Superman goes onto the cabin and destroys the negative ray machine with a chair. I'm not exactly sure why Superman feels the need to destroy a machine with his chair. He has super strength. His fist can do the job just as well as anything else. So, the Spider Lady is now irritated that, that the test went on, and she kind of pouts and slinks away in her dress that would probably be a little bit risque for 1948. We're quickly moving on. That's the thing about these serials. They they don't waste a lot of time. You move right on to the next plot point, which is now a meteor that's about to hit the Earth. This is where we meet Professor Leeds and Mr. Morgan. Morgan, who's Leeds' assistant, he needs money because his pay at the university is crap. This will come into play later. I can't get along on what they pay me. I need money. I hear you, my friend. I hear you. Now... They were estimating that the uh, meteor would show, would show at 8 o'clock, and it's a funny bit here as Clark and Perry split hairs over the time. Perry has 8 o'clock, so the observatory boys are wrong. Clark, meanwhile, has 7.59 and a half. No two clocks are the same. As they're talking, Lois starts kind of wistful, wistfully wondering about where the media comes from, and as she's doing that, the camera goes to Clark, who has this great faraway look in his face, as he's wondering himself if this meteor has anything to do with where he comes from. After the media crashes down into a field, Perry tries to force Lois and Clark to work together. Kind of like in the Fleischer cartoons. And Lois doesn't really want to work with Clark. And this is where Lois is a little bit duplicitous here, just like in the Fleischer cartoons. She unscrews the flashbulb of the camera and fakes a tire blowout. After she sends Clark out to check, and obviously he does, she drives off. But you know what I love about this? It backfires on her. As Professor Leeds picks up Clark and takes him back to the observatory, well, we don't see Lois again until... Chapter 4. Professor Leeds brings Clark back to his office where Morgan has already left and, as Leeds suggests, gone off for dinner. So, Professor Leeds is postulating that the meteor may be from Krypton. And he talks a little bit about how particles of Krypton have circled the sun for years. It kind of almost makes it seem as though Krypton was pretty close to the Earth. But we have no way of knowing whether that's for sure or not. Leeds opens up, opens up the lead box that the meteor is in. Because Leeds had Morgan put in a lead box in case there was any issue with radiation. And we see Clark react to it immediately. He kind of starts, wa starts wavering on his feet a little bit. Leeds is just talking. He's not noticing what's going on. And then Clark just drops. 
Leeds goes to check on him, can't find a heartbeat or anything, and calls the coroner because Clark just died in his office. And he is awfully calm about Clark having just died. Very matter-of-fact about it. If it were me and someone I was talking to just dropped dead right next to me, I'd be freaking out as well. But he's not. The chapter ends there, and that's where we're going to have to pick this thing up next week. On next week's episode, we're going to look at chapters 4 through 6 of Superman the Serial. Now, I really want to hear back from you guys and what you think on uh, on the show so far. I know you guys are out there because this is the first episode that I'm recording since regular episodes have started dro- dropping. So the download numbers show you're out there. So, like I said, I want to hear from you. You can either, one of the best ways to get a hold of me is uh, you can email me, manofscreen at gmail.com. You can like me on Facebook at the Man of Screen Podcast. Or you can leave me a review on iTunes. That'll help uh, people find the show too. So, until next time. Is it possible that Clark Kent, mighty Superman, can really be dead? What terrible power does this strange metal wield over the Man of Steel? For the answers, be sure to check out Episode 6 of the Man of Screen Podcast on this web feed next week. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com. And you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.